In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talked to Mitchell Hamilton about writing CSS in JS with emotion. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 117. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Wadden, and today it is my pleasure to be speaking with Mitchell Hamilton, who is one of the core maintainers of the Emotion CSS in JS library. How's it going, Mitchell? It's going pretty good, thanks. So I guess for anyone who's um, not familiar with you, do you mind just kind of introducing yourself and talking a little bit about um, what you do and kind of what your story is? I think um, what a lot of people don't realize, which is pretty incredible, is that uh, you're still in high school and you're like the core maintainer of this incredibly popular CSS and JS library. Yeah. Um, so um, I I kind of just started doing some programming stuff and then I ended up contributing to this library just kind of because, oh, I thought this is cool. Um, I didn't start contributing to Motion. I started contributing to this library called Glam, which is by this person named Sneil Pai, who's amazing, seriously awesome. He's on the React core team now, just really great person, um, to like fix a little bug. And then eventually that got merged into Emotion, which happened, and then I started contributing a bunch. And yeah. Awesome. Yeah, cool. So so what kind of like drew you to those technologies in, in the first place? I know like a lot of people um, have never used CSS in JS before. Um, did you just kind of get into React and like other people were doing CSS and JS and it just seemed like stuff worth playing with? Yeah, I like kind of started in React and I like, you know, I tried like SAS and like a couple different things, but I was like, all of it just seemed really difficult and hard to do. And, you know, at that point I was like still like quite new to all this stuff and I like, this just seems really difficult and I want there to be an easier way to do this. Interesting. It's interesting to get that perspective, I guess, from someone who kind of started when some of this technology existed that didn't exist at a time where a lot of people like got comfortable with just like using SAS and CSS. Um, because I think there's like a lot of controversy around CSS and JS and people say, oh, you shouldn't be mixing your styles with your components. Everything should be separate. So it's it's always interesting to hear from someone who comes in unbiased, like what felt more natural, you know? Yeah, like uh, a lot of the stuff I do now is just kind of like this thing seems confusing and difficult and I want to make it easier. And I think that's the perspective that makes the best stuff. Yeah, for sure. I totally agree. So I think maybe a good place to sort of start the conversation would be to talk about what CSS and JS even really is. And because I think there's a couple of different approaches to it and some libraries do it in different ways. Um, And maybe some of the motivations for doing things that way, if that's something that you want to speak to. So what is CSS in JS compared to CSS and why would you choose to work that way? Basically, it's just writing styles inside of JavaScript as opposed to a CSS file, essentially. There are like lots of different ways to do it. Like Early on, there was a lot of using like inline styles to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, nowadays, that's basically never used. Um, Everything is inserting like actual CSS rules into the DOM, or well, technically not into the DOM for reasons that I'll probably <laughs> explain later. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, so a lot of it is um, 
inserting things into the page. Um, and like, so you can use like actual media queries and pseudo selectors and like all that stuff that you know from CSS. Yeah, got it. That That's always been sort of the big limitation of inline styles is not being able to do hover states or breakpoints or any of that stuff. Yeah. So um, was Glam the first CSS in JS library that you played with? It was probably like either styled components, Glamour or Glamorous. Okay. Um. I, I kind of, I looked at styled components a bit, but I just kind of, I don't know, I just kind of didn't look at it that much. Like, there wasn't, like, a big reason behind it. I don't know, I just went to other things, because I thought they seemed interesting. And, like, now I'm kind of, like, Glamour. I So, Glamour is um, another library by SnailPy, which has done a lot of really, really exciting stuff, and, like, is the ideas behind a lot of the APIs that exist in a lot of CSS and JS libraries these days. Cool. So what are kind of the different ways that you can do CSS and JS from an API perspective? Because I know like um, sort of the most naive or maybe simple way that I've seen a lot of libraries do is you literally just have a template string where you write a bunch of CSS and a template string and there's some API to sort of attach that template string of styles to a DOM node somewhere. Um, but styled components kind of adds on to that by letting you sort of create components out of template strings that have styles in them. And Emotion has APIs for doing things another way. So um, I haven't played a lot with all these different technologies. So I'd be curious from your perspective, what do you kind of see the main sort of options in terms of like authoring CSS and JS? What are the sorts of APIs that exist across a lot of these libraries? Um, so the biggest like divide between APIs is mostly strings versus objects. So um, like you can either write it like as a normal CSS string, or you can write it as an object with like like as you kind of expect it to be. Um, so like just yeah, a CSS property would be an object key, and then the 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 value for that property is just the value in the object. So it's almost like if you were trying to just look at some CSS and think, how could I translate this data structure to a JavaScript data structure instead of just a string? What would that look like? Yeah, it's basically just take properties, make them camel case, and like if and there's like some special handling in most libraries for like if there's a number on a property that doesn't accept unitless values add px to the end of it um but it's mostly just like concatenate the value after the property and that's it Mm -hmm. got it so the difference from my perspective anyways between like emotion and some of the other tools that i looked at and i'm curious from your perspective like how important this difference is or if i'm just missing something looking at these other libraries is emotion seems like one of the few css and js libraries that um, supports or even encourages letting you basically write what looks like inline styles directly on um, components or elements, but with all the power of CSS. So you can still do hover states, you can still do um, media queries and stuff like that um, using this CSS prop or the class name prop with like a CSS function call. Whereas every other library I've looked at generally you're still kind of like writing the styles and the HTML separate in some way, shape, or form. Like you're either 
creating a new style sheet object and then attaching pieces of the style sheet to different DOM nodes, or you're creating like a styled component and then using that somewhere, um, instead of just being able to just directly throw styles on the things that you want to style. And I think that's the thing that has made emotion seem like the most appealing option to me. Do you see that as a significant difference in sort of the API design versus some of the other CSS and JS libraries? Yeah, that, that's like a really big thing. I'm a huge fan of the CSS prop. I I honestly can't stand the style API. I I don't want to create all these components. I just want to have some elements style them. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's actually like, it's a very old thing. Like the CSS prop existed in Glamour way before styled components even existed. Mm -hmm. um, but then like... Um, yeah, like, so a lot of people, like, went to styled components, and now, like, a lot of people are kind of coming back to the CSS prop, which is kind of interesting. Why do you think that is? Um, I think it's just kind of because the styled API forces you to create abstractions immediately, and that's just really annoying. And often, like, you're, you can't even create the right abstractions. Like... You know, in React, um, if you want to create a component, just like a function that returns an element, and that's it. Um, and then if you want to add some styles with the CSS prop, just add the CSS prop to the element, and you're done. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you use styled components, you have to like create components in this exact way. And like, let's say you want to have a component that renders two elements. You have to create these two styled components. Then you have to create another component where you use those two components. And it's just a lot of work that doesn't really help anything. Yeah, so you're sort of forced to name more things than you would be yeah. if you were able to just say, "Listen, I'm already, I've already got this React component. It has a little bit of state or a little bit of behavior. It needs to render a div with a thing inside of it. I know I want these styles on the div and these styles on the span. I just want to add them. I don't want to have to figure out well." what could I call this div so that I can make it a styled component and then use it inside of this component? Or now I have to create an abstraction around this span just because I want to add some styles to it, even if it's nothing that's ever going to get reused, for example. So it almost seems like pointless to name it. Um, in that sense, it feels like very similar to like a lot of the functional CSS approaches, right? Which is, I think, is probably why emotion appeals to me more because... To me, the main value proposition of tools like Tailwind or Tachyons or Base CSS is avoiding creating abstractions and avoiding naming things. I just want to style things directly. And it seems like Emotion is one of the few tools that um, that sort of encourages that workflow or, or even makes that workflow possible. So do you have a sense for, um, you know, based on your contributions to emotion and paying attention to kind of the activity on GitHub and stuff. Um, what is sort of the most common way of using emotion is using like the raw CSS prop and just like styling things directly more popular than using the styled API or is it sort of like the underdog? Um, I, I think it's mostly the underdog because a lot of like styled components, it's really, really popular. Mm -hmm. People like the API because like it's, like its marketing has been done incredibly well. I mean, it's 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 a good library for like a bunch of reasons, but like especially the marketing has been done so well, so people really like it. Um, and so people are like, oh, here's another one. You can like use that API and maybe also use another API. Um, so people kind of tend to gravitate towards the thing that they know, and you know that's not necessarily a bad thing because you know 
if they know a thing and they can just use it, that's really nice. Yeah, got it. So um, people sort of people who may have been using styled components in the past are using Emotion because it supports a similar API, but they sort of use the CSS prop as an escape hatch sometimes maybe where it's like, I really don't want to create a whole styled component just for this little margin I need to add to something or whatever. So it's nice that I can just slap that on there with the CSS prop when necessary, but they're still maybe primarily working with a more of a styled components mindset. Yeah. So I kind of want to backtrack a little bit because I feel like um, it's hard sometimes in these uh, conversations when I I know a little bit about a tool and I know that the audience maybe doesn't know as much about the tool as me. And uh, it's probably a good idea to sort of talk a little bit about like how you use emotion in like a very specific, um, you know, letter by letter syntax sort of perspective. So um, from your sort of perspective, what does it look like to pull emotion in and use it? And maybe the first thing to, to talk about is like emotion is it's framework agnostic, right? But I think generally it's 99% just used in react does is that sound correct to you or do you see a lot of people using emotion in other environments yeah so it's primarily for react um we have this um framework agnostic api but that's kind of a secondary api um it's it's kind of there because it's existed for a while people use it um if you're doing something in react you probably shouldn't use it but also if you want to use it that's fine um and then we have the API that I like a lot more, um, which is just for React, um, which is mainly like the CSS prop along with other things. Got it. So um, you pull in a motion from NPM, just kind of install it into your uh, React project. And now what are sort of the next steps to be able to get started using it and what does it look like to actually write your first line of emotion code so um it slightly depends how you install it but like the easiest way to do it without dealing with a bunch of configuration things um is you import jsx from animation slash core mm -hmm. um and then you add a little comment um which says at jsx and space jsx um, and what the comment does is tell your compiler, like Babel or TypeScript, to use the JSX function when compiling JSX. Um, so instead of using React.createElement to create elements, it uses Emotion's JSX function. Got it. So I kind of want to take a little bit of a detour for a second to talk about that because I find that to be um, interesting. And I, I've seen a couple different tools do this. Um, and I guess it's called a JSX pragma, which um, basically lets, yeah, it lets you sort of override what function is going to be used to handle like react.createElement. Because, so you tell me if I'm understanding this correctly and if I'm getting anything wrong, but the way I understand how just JSX in general works is there's this sort of transpilation phase that takes your JSX and converts that to a bunch of regular function calls and which is basically just calling react dot create element to create each one of these like jsx elements and this jsx pragma feature is letting you say instead of using 
react.create element use my function instead, which has the same API as react.create element. So everything that gets passed into it is going to just totally work. And you're sort of just like switching it out with something else, which maybe likely under the hood probably delegates to react.create element at some point in some way. Is that correct? Yep. All of that's completely correct. So is there other things similar to this that are like features of Babel or TypeScript that people do besides just like this JSX thing? Or is this just a very, very specific feature just for allowing people to override how JSX is transformed? Like are there other transformations you can do by importing things and adding special comments in Babel? Um, Well, so there's one other that's also related to JSX, which is um, the you can change the JSX fragment because um, a a feature in React 16 was fragments. You can have a component return multiple elements, mm-hmm. um, and they added this shorthand syntax. So it's basically just if you know like JSX, just like remove the name of the element, and you have a fragment. So it's just like open angle bracket, close angle bracket, yeah. just like kind yeah. of an empty yeah. looking tag. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that transforms into the JSX like fragment thing, which is by default react.fragment. And if you wanted to, you could customize that just like you can with the with the uh, the react.create element thing. Got it. So um, maybe I'm trying to think what would be interesting to get into next. I don't want to get too, too sidetracked into the details. So maybe we can start or just continue down this path of like, what do you do next? So you've imported the JSX um, export from add emotion slash core. You've added your comment to the top of the file saying, hey, React, uh, we want to do, we want to be responsible for compiling the JSX so we can sort of do some tricks to make the emotion API nicer. Um, what's the next step? Um, then you just like write your normal React elements and you can just add a CSS prop onto any element, um, put in the styles with like a string or, well, if you want to use a string, you have to import the CSS, CSS function from animation slash core and call it with a tag template literal um, and then put in your string styles like that. If it's just an object, you can just pass in the object directly to the CSS prop. And then that element, um, instead of actually getting a prop called CSS, it'll get a class name so that'll just be applied and the styles are inserted um, and then it all just works. Okay, so that, I think that's where it gets interesting to sort of talk a little bit about what the custom like JSX pragma is doing in Emotion. So um, you're adding the CSS prop to say a div and you're putting an object in there that says like background color, red, font size, 16 or whatever. Um, but that's not actually adding like a a CSS prop to the component per se, right? It sounds like what's happening is the, your sort of override for react.create element is inspecting what got passed to and saying, oh, well you passed a CSS prop, I'm gonna actually give react a class name prop instead, which means somehow you're creating a class name out of the styles that were passed in to the CSS prop, is that right? Um, on a high level, yes, there are some little like okay. implementation detail detail differences. Um, mainly because we have to consume a context value to do things, and we also could potentially return 
another element because we do zero config server rendering, so we render a style tag if we're on the server. Um, so we have to like render our own. We return our own an element of our own component, and that component renders the actual element. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So you're not just returning a div, you're returning like some special emotion component that's sort of like a transparent component, I guess, that doesn't actually render any any extra HTML, um, but it sort of just kind of houses all of the information that's necessary to render the right thing depending on the environment that you're in? Yeah. Got it. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Cloudinary. So if I had to describe Cloudinary myself, it's basically just the best way to store and serve images that I've ever seen. In the past, I used to use generic storage services like Amazon S3 to store and serve images, uh, but after switching to Cloudinary, I genuinely cannot believe I ever did this stuff any other way. Uh, so here's one example of how Cloudinary has made my life easier. Uh, so you probably know that typically images are the heaviest resource your users have to download when they visit your site, right? Usually way more than your JavaScript or CSS. So in the past, I would spend a lot of time tweaking settings and tools like Image Alpha and Image Optim to try and optimize my image files so they weren't as large. Uh, with Cloudinary, I can just upload the full resolution file without even really thinking about it. And then by just adding a parameter to the image URL that I get back, uh, when I go to serve it on my site, Cloudinary will automatically optimize that image as best as it can, usually resulting in file sizes that are actually lower than what I was seeing when trying to optimize the images by hand. Uh, this is even more useful for like user uploaded images because instead of trying to do some fancy automatic image optimization in a background job on my own server or something, I can just send those images directly to Cloudinary from the browser, I request the optimized version back by adding that URL parameter, and bam, I've got an optimized image at a really small file size. Uh, so there's an enormous amount of other cool stuff that you can do through the URL-based API. That's really just scratching the surface, but you can do stuff like request images at different sizes so you can serve smaller images on mobile devices so you're not wasting bandwidth. Uh, you can crop images to different dimensions. You can crop images using face detection, so just crop to the faces in an image. Uh, you can automatically add watermarks or text overlays or tons of different effects and stuff like that. It's a seriously impressive service. So Cloudinary has an amazing free plan where you can store 300,000 images and videos. Yeah, did I mention you can do all this crazy stuff, not just with images, but also with videos too. Uh, you get 10 gigabytes of storage and 20 gigabytes of monthly bandwidth on this free plan. Uh, so if you're not already using them, definitely head over to cloudinary.com and check it out. It really is one of my absolute favorite services that I use on my own projects. Thanks a ton to Cloudinary for sponsoring this episode. Back to the show. So when you are generating class names for these things, because um, when you go into like, when you use Emotion and you're working on a React app and you go into like the Chrome Dev Tools and start looking at your HTML to see like, okay, what did it do? Like what happened? Where did these styles come from? Um, you see like a bunch of sort of what looks like hashed class names with some meta information on them sometimes to sort of help you understand where you are. Like sometimes I see the component name and the class name and stuff like that. Um, and I noticed that it does seem to reuse class names too, um, which was something I was curious about. Like I was curious, is it just generating new class names every single time or is it trying to be smart about figuring out how to, you know, not generate new classes if like we're just applying the exact same styles that have already been applied somewhere else? 
So I'm curious to know, like, um, what, what sort of the, the process has been so far and what sort of the history has been in, um, figuring out how to, first of all, decide like when to generate a new class and how to optimize for making sure that you're not, you know, unnecessarily just generating the same rules over and over again. Like if I'm looping over a component 50 times that has the same classes on it, well, you don't want to generate 50 new classes that all have the same styles, of course. Um, but deciding like how to actually make that stuff work and, and when to reuse stuff versus when not to reuse stuff. And I have seen situations where I would have expected emotion to maybe try and reuse the same class because the styles happen to be the same, but because I was applying it on a different component, it generates a different class. So what's some of the trade-offs and decisions have been to figure out how do we make this as um, fast as possible and what edge cases do we have to account for and stuff like that? Because it sounds like a really, uh, a really interesting problem to try and get that stuff right and make everything fast. Yeah, the solution is actually mostly straightforward. We essentially just, um, so we take how so the styles, however they're written, like a string, object, whatever, um, and we just turn it into one big, long, concatenated string. And then we just run it through this hashing algorithm that some person implemented. Um, and it's a fast hashing algorithm, of course, not like oh, some yeah. sort of security-focused hashing algorithm. Just oh, like yeah, yeah, it is. It's, it's not right? cryptographically secure. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it works perfectly for our use case. Um, so we hash it and then we just like do CSS dash the hash and that's the thing. Um, but so labels are the thing you're talking about, the named thing. Um, so there are a couple of different ways that we add labels. One of the kind of things that I find interesting and kind of like, wow, that's some bad code, but it does something really helpful. Um, what we actually do is um, when you use the CSS prop in development, um, we create an error and parse the stack trace to find the function name that it's being called from. <laughs> and if it like is like a Pascal case name, so like it looks like a function component, we use that name and we just like append it to the thing. Um, so we have names like that. We also use a Babel plugin to insert the names and that can be a lot smarter. Like it can work for like classes and other cases that we can't handle with this. Pretty interesting. So um, I'd be curious to know like um, what other sort of performance considerations and stuff you have to take into account when building a tool like this. Because I think some of the sort of controversy around CSS and JS is that it adds a lot of runtime cost to your application because historically you have a static style sheet, the browser just loads it and parses it, it's done with it. And from then on, anytime you, even when you're dynamically toggling classes and stuff, the browser already sort of knows what those classes are and, and what they're supposed to do. But in tools like Emotion, um, it sounds like you're dynamically adding new style definitions to the page uh as necessary and and you know a lot of these styles aren't even there like right at the beginning when the when the page first loads and stuff like that so what sort of considerations and stuff do you have to make to try and make this stuff performant and 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 is performance even as much of a concern maybe as people um worry about people who haven't necessarily even benchmarked it 
Yeah, so there's a lot of performance considerations. Some of them are just like make the code that's doing stuff fast. Like um, we use this library called Stylus, not Stylus, Stylus, um, to like prefix and um, handle like nesting. And that's like a really fast and small library. Um, it's basically just like a bunch of huge switch statements. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really great. It's really fast. Um, but like the really big performance thing with CSS and JS that a lot of libraries didn't do, um, which kind of made them slow, is they inserted styles into the page badly. Okay. Or rather, using an API that's kind of slow. So what? So what were they doing, and what are you doing differently? Um, so what they did is they inserted a style tag, and then um, just appended the um, a new CSS rule to the inner HTML. So you're just t- literally adding a new DOM element to the DOM that contains the CSS, and just letting the browser sort of notice that you've done that, and then process it because it realizes, oh, well, new style tag has been added. I ha- I better account for these styles somehow. And that, I guess, is apparently slow. And I guess there's a more performant way to do that that probably very few regular web developers have ever heard of. <laughs> so I'm curious to know um, what are the APIs that you're using and why are they faster? Yeah, well, just the first thing is it's not that that is inherently slow. The reason that that way is slow is because just insert, just adding the new CSS rule to inner HTML. What that means is that the browser has to reparse the whole contents of the style tag. And if you have like thousands and like, like tens of thousands of rules, that's really slow. If you, if the browser has to reparse it on every single rule that you add. Got it. So quickly, I've seen some tools that I've worked with when they're doing any sort of dynamic stuff. They, they're, they're often, there's often many style tags because um, it seems like it's tr- adding new style tags when it adds a new style. Is that faster than adding CSS to an existing style tag? Um, it's, it's kind of a trade-off. Um, okay. Like at a certain point, yeah. Um, well, so emotion is kind of interesting. In development, we insert one rule per style tag um, in development. And the reason for that, it's not about performance. It's because we um, allow, we, we, the Babel plugin will generate source maps. So you can like have source maps that point back to your JavaScript um, for the style. And unless we had some really complex code, um, we couldn't have source maps that point to um, different rules in the same style tag. So we basically just have a source map that's not totally perfect, but is good enough, and just insert it with one rule. Um, so that's what we do in development. It's fast enough for development, but then in production, this is the where performance matters, um, we, use, we don't actually insert the rules into the DOM. Got it. So how the hell do you, you do that? <laughs> yeah, so um, we, we insert a style tag. There's still a style tag there. Um, but rather than inserting it into the DOM with like inner HTML, um, we use this API called insert rule. 
Okay. Which is part and of this, this and this CSS is like what, where does insert rule live? Is this like something that exists on style elements? Um, yeah, it's if you create a style element and you access the sheet property, there's an insert rule method on that. Okay. Um, and it's also available in other places, like um, there the like it's from the CSS style sheet class, which is like if you access document.stylesheets and you look at the style sheets, you can also find the insert rule method there. Got it. And so this insert rule method is really good because it inserts a single rule. Interesting. So one thing that I think this is related to that I think maybe will be interesting for other people to connect the dots with is a lot of times when I'm um, looking in like the dev tools on production React sites, I'll see a bunch of styles in the dev tools that are all like italicized and uneditable that I can't see where the hell they came from. Are those coming from this API where like these things just kind of exist in memory, but were never actually added to the rendered DOM? Yeah, that's that's exactly correct. Um, Chrome and I th- well, I think Firefox. I think actually you can edit rules in Dev Tools that were inserted with Insert Rule, but okay. a lot of browsers you can't. Um, and yeah, Insert Rule is why. Awesome. So that is the API that you use. So I'm looking at sort of the API for insert rule. Now it looks like it just, yeah, you have a style sheet, which is every style tag, I guess has its own style sheet just inherently. So you can insert a rule, which is just a a string. And if you try to insert multiple rules, like if you try to insert a longer CSS string, what happens if you try to insert like multiple declarations? Um, It'll just throw. Got it. So it's pretty strict about that. So it's liter- yeah. It's not that you're inserting a CSS string fragment that it's going to do whatever it wants with it. It has to be like a well-formatted single rule. Yeah. Um, and then the next parameter is an index. So that actually is a, brings up an interesting topic, I think, because something that I've always found odd with the CSS and JS stuff is... Um, in my history of writing regular CSS, I've I've always known, and it's always been important to understand that um, declaration order is very important in CSS, right? To make sure that if you want to add two classes to an element and you want to know which one is going to apply if they both are applying the same property, you have to think about, first of all, the specificity of the rule. But if the specificity is the same, then it's the declaration order in your style sheet that determines which rule is going to win so with all the css and js stuff i've looked at um it's always seemed like there wasn't any way to have sort of control over declaration order and i think probably that's not important for a a lot of things like especially the way that emotion works where you are passing in like an object to the css prop and it's creating sort of a unique class based on that situation Um, And it's only adding one class to the element. And the expectation, I think, is that you're not adding multiple classes ever. So you don't really have to worry about that, that problem. But I do wonder, like, couldn't you still have that problem if you were trying to add global base styles or anything? And I guess maybe first of all, is that something people even worry about? Like, I'm always using something like normalize on a project at the very beginning. So I, so I at least know that everything's going to behave the same. Otherwise, once I start doing my regular CSS stuff, maybe like a reset, like setting box sizing to border box or removing like the padding from the body or 
making sure that the font size is the same and form elements across browsers and stuff like that before I start adding custom styles. Um, so can you do like global base styles with CSS and JS libraries like Emotion? And is that something that people are normally doing? And if you are doing that sort of thing, how do you make sure that declaration order isn't a problem? Yeah, so in terms of global styles, we have this global component, which lets you insert global styles. Um, it's basically the same API. Rather than a CSS prop, it accepts a styles prop. Um, and you essentially just pass in the same kind of style of CSS that you would just pass the CSS prop, except you pass it to this prop, and it won't be like scoped to a hashed class name. Um, and so to answer the kind of specificity question, um, global styles are always inserted before the regular hashed class names. Um, and, you know, that's not totally perfect because you could technically have some problems like if you have multiple global styles that are in different components and then like one gets unmounted and it'll be in like different order. Like there are certainly some problems um, but generally, it doesn't actually become an issue because it's just some a couple global styles. You just like have this one big set of global styles that you have, and everything else will come after it. And because of because you only ever have one class name, like you mentioned, um, because you're composing styles together rather than relying on the declaration order, you don't have any of those problems. Um, the would for the like actual styles of an element got it so actually that brings up like an interesting topic which i mean we haven't really talked about what composition looks like in emotion in general because i think that's an interesting an interesting thing to talk about in sort of traditional css you might just like apply multiple classes to an element but in emotion the idea is that every component or every element is only going to be rendered with a single class so if you have sort of multiple predefined um, style objects. Like say you know that there's a batch of reusable styles here and another batch of reusable styles here. And for some elements in this component, I only want to apply like the one set of styles, but for other elements, I want to add these extra pieces of styles and you don't want to duplicate those declarations by hand every time. So you're just going to do the simple thing and ex extract that to some object so you can reuse it, but sometimes you want to combine it with other things. What does that story look like in Emotion to be able to just combine styles from one object with styles from another object? Yeah, so that's basically just kind of, it's kind of the thing you would sort of expect. So you can either, you could, if it's an object, you could like spread the object or you can just have an array with like multiple objects. Um, if it's in string styles, you can just interpolate the other style inside of that style. Um, and like another interesting thing with composition, um, not necessarily about I kind of, like I have an element and I want to apply multiple styles to it, but let's say I have a component which has some styles defined with the CSS prop, and then I use that component and I also apply the CSS prop to the component itself. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So so you have like say you have a component like a button or something, and inside the declaration of the button it's using the css prop to say like we have padding of 15 pixels and the font weight is bold or whatever but then in the parent consuming component you're saying okay i want to have three buttons on this page 
you want to add the CSS prop to like override some styles or something like that. That's kind of what you're talking about here. Yeah, yeah, that case. So um, the kind of problem that you have is um, you define the CSS prop on the parent, on the like button component, let's say. Um, like the button component that you have in the button component uses the CSS prop. Um, the question is, what styles do you want to take precedence? Um, and the answer, we've thought about this for a while, and the answer is basically you want the styles that you're applying to the button component to take precedence over the styles inside of the button component. Yeah, like the styles layered on from the parent should probably take precedence. Yeah. Um, but so that kind of presents a problem. This component, it receives a class name. Um, so, but we need to, so what we do is we store all of the underlying styles. Um, and when we find a class name that looks like it's an emotion class name, we take out the class and we get the actual underlying styles and we concatenate the underlying styles into the thing. And doing this is actually really, really powerful because it means that we don't have to care about insertion order across rule sets. Because, like, um, and what I mean by the term rule set is, like, you have an element, it has a CSS prop, it could have, like, some root styles plus, like, a hover pseudo-selector. So, like, two rules, so that's, like, a rule set. Um, and so not having to care about order is really powerful, because then it means you can do all of this caching. But if you care about order, you can't do that caching. So what do you mean by that? Like, what's a situation where, um, that you would run into in, in a, like, a practical use case where if order mattered, you wouldn't be able to, to cache stuff. And, and I guess, what do you mean by the like caching in general and emotion? Um, well, so the caching is just like, if, if the hash is the same, then we can just return the same class name and we don't have to reinsert the styles. Got it. That, that, that's basically how the caching works. Like there's, there isn't really any special cases with that. That's just how the caching works. Um, but if we cared about order, um, well, it's kind of because you don't or you shouldn't apply multiple emotion class names to the same element that we can not care about order. Because if you could apply multiple emotion class names to the same element, then we would have to care about order. So that we can... You would have to basically check like, okay, so these styles are the same as this other class name styles, but we have to be worried about like are those other styles declared in a certain position in the rule set such that they're going to have the, they're actually going to have the same effect from like based on the intention of the author of this code um, because they might be expecting like the order of the rules to be generated in a different way, which means things would be layered differently. And you get back to that declaration order problem we sort of talked about before where how you decide which rule should actually be applied depends on the order of the CSS. So if you know that you're only ever going to have one class name, then you can, you can just completely ignore that problem and just check as long as the hash of these styles is the same. I know it's safe to reuse that because we never have to worry about two class names on the same element competing to sort of determine which one wins for certain properties. Yeah, that's that's pretty much exactly it. 
Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is DigitalOcean. So DigitalOcean is a simple, developer-friendly cloud platform optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. Uh, I've personally been a customer of DigitalOcean for about five years, and I use them to host all of my server-side projects, like my custom course platform, for example, which is built with Laravel. A lot of the guests that I've had on the show in the past are DigitalOcean customers as well. Uh, For example, Taylor Otwell, the creator of Laravel, he uses DigitalOcean to host all of his products like Envoyer and Laravel Forge, and Jeffrey Way actually uses DigitalOcean to host Laracast as well. Uh, One of DigitalOcean's newest features that I'm personally really excited about is managed databases, uh, which lets you spin up a completely managed database server so you don't have to worry about anything like backups, uh, managing read-only replicas, or just general server maintenance. Now, DigitalOcean is already an extremely affordable service. You can spin up a server for as little as $5 a month, but they've been kind enough to offer a free $50 credit to Full Stack Radio listeners. So head over to do.co slash full stack, all one word, to claim your $50 credit. And thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode. Back to the show. Cool. So um, I think maybe the last topic to get into uh, that I think is pretty interesting is just like server-side rendering stuff and any sort of stuff related to like static exporting and and how you guys have thought about that and if that's a problem or if it's not a problem. So um, I guess the first question is, is Emotion compatible with server-side rendering? Yes, basically that's... Perfect. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so a big part of the latest major release um, was what we call zero config server rendering. Okay. So in prior versions, we supported server rendering. Like you could still do it, but you had to basically wrap your call to React DOM dot render to string. You had to wrap it with this. There were a couple of different ways to do it, but essentially you had to call this method so you could get the styles that were used in that HTML. Okay. Um, and you know that's that's good. It works. But it means that I can't just go, oh, hey, here's a component. You can use it. It can serve a render. You don't have to care about anything else. It's just a component that renders stuff. Um, So what we did with version 10 is rather than having this method that you have to call after you do server rendering, we just insert, we just return actual style elements um, whenever you use a style. Um, and that'll just be in the HTML put the React DOM dot rendered to string returns. Um, so basically, server rendering just works. So I can just go here's a component, it has some styles, and it'll just work everywhere basically. And you don't have to care what it's using; it just works. So d- does that mean that when you server render a React app that has say like say there's 50 components and each one is using Emotion for its styling? Does that mean that the server rendered version of the app is going to have 50 style tags as well? Like one style tag for every component? Like just rendered like directly above the element or something? Or um, It it depends. Um, it's actually kind of a complex... Well, a specific part of it is a complex problem. Um, if you had 50 unique styles um, across 50 elements, then yes, you would have 50 style tags. Okay. The main problem that the way we do this has is that we don't, in the browser, we know that we have a single document. 
Um, so we can like cache things in our like local scope. Okay. But on the server, we don't really know like what render we're in, um, unless we have some kind of context. Okay. So what we do is whenever on the server, whenever we're rendering a element, we ch- we consume this React context, um, and we check is it null. If it is, then we create a new cache, which um, caches things, and then we also provide it to any of its children. Um, and if the cache does exist, then we just then we can if the style that we're rendering has already been inserted, we don't have to insert it again. Um, but the problem with that is that let's say you have two sibling components, mm-hmm. which both use emotion, but there's no parent that uses emotion. Um, and they're the same styles, you'll get two style tags. Got it. Because it's just impossible to otherwise know that they're the same because you haven't sort of like booted and sort of an emotion environment really yet. Yeah. It's it's kind of just a sucky problem. It's it's just a trade-off that we're making. I think it's worth it because not having to care about server rendering and just being able to go, here's a component, use it, is so nice. Like mm-hmm. recently I, I like installed some component and then um, I it's it was like in a Gatsby site um, and then, you know, I rendered it and then I was like looking at the production version of it and oh, there's this jump and it's because, oh yeah, because it's using this, it was actually using a previous version of Emotion that didn't support this um, and so, oh no, I have to add this code to do it which you know it's just just manual stuff that just just more opportunities for forgetting something or making a mistake or yeah and it just breaks out of this abstraction this really nice component abstraction that you have and forces you to do this extra thing cool so i guess like the last topic um which i kind of think of as related to this is is there any way with a motion to do like like a static css export like i know a lot of not a lot of but there's other css and js tools that talk about how the the advertiser benefit is like zero runtime cost like everything's just at builds time or whatever is that a problem that you're interested in tackling um with emotion and if not like you know why or why not um so originally that was kind of the point of emotion we were like yeah we're gonna do everything at build time Mm -hmm. we kind of gravitated away from that though um because you know, it's it's a nice ideal, and I think eventually it will likely be practical to do well. But if you want to have, like, really dynamic code, it's just impractical with the tools we have to execute that at compile time. Yeah, because you don't know necessarily what every kind of permutation of state that could possibly exist at runtime is going to be right at build time yeah and that that's sort of what like sounded like the hard problem to me and i wasn't sure like how these other tools could even really support a static export without having very significant limitations on like what you can even do yeah so basically the answer is they have limitations and often like you know they you know a lot of them they're like you can you can do sort of dynamic things um, but like, it's very easy to kind of go, oh no, this doesn't work. Um, so like you're really constrained and that, I think that kind of ruins a lot of the benefits of CSS and JS. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Cool. Well, I think maybe that's a good place to start wrapping things up. What What would you say um, is the best uh, set of resources for someone who wanted to to get started with emotion or wanted to test it out on something? Um, probably the emotion docs. It's emotion.sh. Um, it is hopefully pretty good. Um, it has lots of examples. Well, there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed this conversation about CSS and JS with Emotion. If you're interested in the show notes for this episode, you can check them out at fullstackradio.com slash 117. Thanks to Cloudinary and DigitalOcean for sponsoring the podcast this week, and we'll see you next time.